Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. I hope you are well. This is part two, or the conclusion of our discussion on the Beirut explosion and mass casualty event. If you haven't heard part one, that is a first-hand account of what it was like to be an emergency physician in the emergency department at the time of the explosion and during the initial hours after the event. You may want to listen to that to have some context surrounding what we're about to discuss, but honestly say that if you haven't listened to it yet, you frankly don't have to do it in order because what we've got today can stand alone or even serve as a prelude to that discussion. So depending on how you like to watch a movie and its sequel, do you like to watch a sequel first? you like to watch a movie first? Well, either way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work either way. But our guest today is Ryan Cheney. Ryan is a therapist. He's a breathwork and performance coach, and he is frankly a thought leader in how to navigate the sometimes difficult waters of emergency and frontline care. You may remember Ryan as our guest on Stimulus Episode 5, The Art of Breathing, which I highly recommend. So good. And it's really a treat and an honor to have him back on the show. But more on that in a moment. If you haven't already, check out our page in partnership with World Bicycle Relief. We've got a link to that in the show notes. Changing lives in underserved regions by providing bicycles. One bike, one bike can truly change a life. That link in the show notes will take you to the stimulus donation page, and we will match donations up to $1,000. Thanks to all of you who have already donated, and frankly, your really thoughtful messages. That very touching, means a lot. Also, Essentials of Emergency Medicine is on. It is on like Donkey Kong. Now, some of you might not know that reference, but on like Donkey Kong, like if you said that in the 80s, you were pretty cool. You were fat with a P-H-A-T. It is on May 25th through 27th. I and the team will be at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles. It's going to be live streaming, live streaming to wherever you may be. I actually know one EM group who's going to have a viewing party for the keynote. Now that is an Excelsior idea. Essentialsofem.com. And you know, use the code Orman, my last name at checkout for $100 off the reg. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Ryan Cheney joining us for what was intended to be a 10-minute discussion. I was actually going to put this as the same podcast, the one we did with Sarah Abdel-Nabi on the Beirut explosion, but a 10-minute discussion turned into something much more involved on strategies for self-care surrounding mass casualty events, expanding into what you'll see as a full-blown discussion on managing your response to traumatic events in general. We're also going to talk about the value of taking action during an event, not just getting things done, you know, the, the medical care perspective, but really to bolster emotional resilience. We'll talk about specific exercises to process and let go of difficult or traumatic cases. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, but starting off, we get into an event familiar to us all, the Las Vegas mass casualty and the wide range of emotional responses of those who were involved. Let's get to it. Ryan, I've seen so many different ways that this can go from at least a psychological standpoint. I think the logistics of running these things is usually pretty pretty straightforward, even though it's chaos. But 
I mentioned in the introduction about the Las Vegas mass casualty, and I spoke with so many people that were involved in that. And there was really this wide range of how things were going. I think I spoke with them five months afterwards. I can remember specifically speaking with a trauma surgeon. I spoke with several trauma surgeons, one, one guy in particular, as well as the ED doc. And they both thought about this stuff all the time. And you know they were specialists in this and were dedicated continually to finding better ways to do it. And when it finally happened for them, it was game on. And afterwards, the trauma surgeon said, yes, you know, it was a tragedy on so many levels. Obviously, it was a tragedy. But from his perspective, when he went in, what he said, he said, it was awesome. And that was what he is. It was awesome. He felt a little bad about it, right? Because, <laughs> you know, it's framed in such a tragedy. He said, this is exactly what I'm trained to do. I mean, I, I could not imagine anything better for me to do. There was no pause. There was no vacant look. He was not distressed. The emergency doc He's now internationally known as being instrumental in organizing this response, and his methods are now used around the world in mass casualty. He was super chill. He was a matter of fact. He said, look, this is what I do. I got the job done. I love this. I thrive on this. And there were others, many people who I spoke to, when they got into it, I could see that they were, they were still shocked. Many of their coworkers were having a really hard time. And before we get into you know tips on how to how to manage how to do well during an, an after event like this. Is there a certain personality type or maybe even quality of training beforehand that can diminish some of the psychological impact afterward? Or I guess it may be a way, another way of phrasing it is that will impact how you do psychologically afterward. Great point. Trauma is different for every single nervous system. The example I love to give clients is actually comes from my own family, right? My, my son has this ball python snake and he'll play with it and put it on my five-year-old's shoulders and they're giggling and laughing. And then if he goes and towards my wife with the snake, what happens, right? She goes into a trauma, stress response, high emotion, sympathetic, shaking, get that thing away from me. So it's traumatic to one person isn't to another. What sticks trauma-wise to one person doesn't for another. And we don't know all the specifics. Like I wish it was really easy to tell what's going to happen for each type of individual, um, but we're all different, right? And I think it's important to normalize um, some of these response patterns for people because it's pretty normal to go through a period after you know, like a mass casualty event or, or any type of trauma event where you have these kind of reoccurring, potentially troubling thoughts and memories that come up, that's your system trying to integrate it all and make sense of it all. And the difference for, for people that move through that and integrate it versus those who get stuck in it, there's different factors that we kind of can see as, you know, nothing's deterministic, Right. But there are certain factors, like if, if you had a lot of adverse childhood experiences, a lot of trauma in your childhood, developmental trauma, more likely to have trauma problems from something like this. If you um, take action versus freeze or can't do anything, right? That action is extremely preventative or protective as well. And then, yes, we can train, right? And, th and this is this like, as I was thinking about later on when we dive into tips, What's pre-event stuff you can do? Yeah, you can train for it. 
and you can work on building resilience um, and learning how to modulate your nervous system. And, and like this physician you talked about, some of this is even mindset, right? Like what your, what is your mindset going into it? What is your purpose? What is your action? But then your lifestyle, how's your nutrition, your sleep, your movement practices, what's your stress management skills, quality of relationships. Do you have effective playtime, time inward, self-awareness, like all the building up these things allow you to handle these stressful events in a much better way. All of those things that you were just talking about outside of the scope of your day job or your clinical practice brings to mind the metaphor of a bench. International listeners, I apologize for the baseball analogy, but all of these things are your relief pitchers. They're your bench. And it's like, look, some, sometimes things get tired out and you've got all of these other quanta of resilience. Really, it is. You know, you talk about like, well, it's grit and resilience. Like all of these things add to it. Training, breath work, mindfulness, relationships, playtime. They're all part of it. And, and you think, and, and as you say, it's like, oh, that, that's totally a fet. That's totally lame. But no. That actually is it. That's like a foundation piece, right? Like if you if you have cracks in your foundation and you start adding on, piling on the framework for stories, stressors, life events, if your foundation is cracked, it's it's gonna be harder to manage. And this isn't just a mental thing, this is a body thing. We can't separate trauma from mind body, and it's very much body-based, and we'll get more into that. Well, yeah, these lifestyle things make a difference. Relationships make a difference. Meaning and purpose, right? The other thing that popped up for me as you were bringing up this trauma surgeon is like, this was his meaning and purpose. Earlier in the year, this has been, well, just over a year of COVID, right? I reread this book, uh, Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's his story about getting through the Holocaust. And one of the things he talks about is like, when you have meaning and purpose, you can get through almost anything. And so there's a protective factor to that too. When somebody feels like they are serving their purpose, right? And that, that can be a hard thing to discover and figure out what it is for you. But when you find it and you train for it and you put everything into it, there's a big, big protective factor in that. And you can get through a lot and it's not going to affect you in the same way. You mentioned this a little bit, but what's going on with that? I could only describe it as PTSD when after an event, you cry, when you go into work, you yeah. snap at patients. What is happening in your brain? What's happening physiologically? The nervous system and the body are very connected to this. So if you imagine what you experience, first of all, what is trauma? Okay. Here's this mass casualty thing or this hearing Sarah's story about not only being in trauma, but taking care of it at the same time, right? Like the intensity of that event and the accumulation that she talks about of, of multiple factors going on, you know, in the world and her nation, all of this stuff is experienced through sight, taste, touch, sound, smell, right? It comes up through our body, into our brainstem, into our limbic system. This limbic system is, think of this as like the, um, like the amygdala is, is our smoke alarm. That's what goes off. Like I'll, you think you're doing fine and you go back into your shift and you hear or smell or see or experience something that all of a sudden reminds your nervous system, your limbic system of that trauma and all this flood of, of emotions and events can come flaring back up. 
So it's not like a higher level conscious prefrontal cortex thinking part of your brain. It's this deep limbic system that's just basically designed to keep us alive. And it will hold on to negative things much, much stronger than it'll hold on to, to positive. I talk about like the negative events are Velcro, the positives, Teflon. That's why we have to put more focus in like gratitude practice and these things that think like, what? But now the science is really clear on this stuff. So for some people, you go through this trauma and it starts to fully integrate and and things like memory will change, right? Like all of a sudden it won't be so horrific. It'll still be bad or a hard experience, but then you'll start hearing yourself saying, well, I made a difference. It was a really hard time, but man, like my team got together and we, we like worked hard. It was amazing to, to watch our team take care of all these patients. Um, and so it, it builds more into this like resilient, positive thing. If it gets stuck, it stays in that trauma place. And so our nervous system and our body can get stuck in a trauma response. And that pattern is where it becomes really problematic for people. It's not a weakness. Like it, it's just your system responding to this extreme emotional or extremely sympathetic event. The event itself doesn't matter. The snake to my son, fun. Snake to my wife, scary. So let's get into some specific strategies because you know many many of the listeners to this show will be involved in mass casualty events, in things that are traumatic to the clinician or the or the caregiver or just you know even if you're non-medical, it's just this is going to happen. So I want to do during event and after event, and maybe there's other, there's other aspects. So let's say you're in the midst of it. Yeah. And you know, you're in the midst of it. Sometimes it's funny. You don't know. I can remember I was in a, I was in a mass casualty one time and all of a sudden I was like, oh my, wait, wait, like the, the whole paradigm has changed. I didn't, I did not realize that that's what this was. And it was like, whoa, the cortisol just went out the roof. So let's, let's start there. Let's start in the event, let's say you, you know it, it's usually pretty obvious. What do you do? You know, the, the first thing, which we kind of spoke to before is, and this is actually pretty inherent or protective factor for, for most of your listeners is taking action. You're doing something with this. Because if you think about our, our nervous system, when it spikes up into that sympathetic zone of fight, flight, freeze, and for most of most of your docs and ER people, you've done enough training where you're not up in that high zone. You're in more of a performing zone until maybe the accumulation gets too big or, or something happens, right? And, and your nervous system spikes up too high. So taking action versus being helpless. And that helplessness isn't not just not being able to do something. Some of that's a mindset piece too. I remember when Sarah was talking about just the state of their trauma center, the darkness, running out of supplies, like just, right, you know, here's this massive example, the mindset of helplessness, it could be you focus on everything that's going wrong, or you could focus on what can I do? How can I help this patient? And so, taking action in that form, including that, that mindset around it, I think is really important. Giving yourself compassion wraps into the same thing. Like, we are doing the best we can and that's good enough. I mean, you can literally tell yourself that mantra, especially if you're feeling overwhelmed and, and trying to get yourself to come down, right? Because there's that zone where it's performance and flow. And then there's that zone where like, okay, now I'm not thinking very well, or I'm yelling at this, or I'm not yelling at this patient, or I'm not 
using my higher level thinking skills that great. So giving yourself some passion, like, yeah, this is a crazy chaotic event or even just the standard stressors of, of a, a bad ER night, you know, whatever that is. A, it starts with yourself, but B, what also can be really helpful is sending compassion and well-being to those people you're taking care of. Empathy, putting yourselves in their shoes, right? I, and I remember Sarah talking about one person that just stuck out to her. And it struck me that like there was this tone of empathy towards that patient, similar age, right? We can relate. Empathy is a really powerful tool and it can really lead to burnout and or kind of increased trauma response. So it can be really helpful during is literally sending compassion towards that person or that family, even if they're not going to make it, right? Or, or if you've done everything you can, wishing them the best, wishing them well. That's kind of the like balancing point of empathy. That's a long-term strategy for you know anybody in the healthcare industry. And that's also in the moment during an event strategy. So the first thing is action and action is so hyper-focused, especially in these events. It's like, and I've, I've heard people saying these things like, I don't want to just stand around and do nothing. Give me something to do. Even if it's just like, hold this bandage on somebody. I hadn't even thought of that before. It is almost like this neural rewiring in the moment, but the self-compassion I think can be so much harder in those moments. Your brain is spinning so much. So if somebody said, well, how specifically do I do that? at that time? How, what, what would be your advice? You know, some of this is kind of goes back to the, the pre-event stuff, the training yourself, right? Self-awareness. The more you train the idea of like equanimity, where I'm noticing what's coming up for me and I'm not pulling away from something, pushing away, um, moving towards or like grasping for something, right? This practicing equanimity, practicing awareness mindset, which is, you know, that term is almost overused these days. All of that builds more integration and awareness. When you start building that into your life, it just automatically happens. So now when you're in this event, you're noticing like, oh, I just had that thought, like I'm not doing enough. Or, oh, I just had that. And, and it becomes visible because so much of what we say, think, do, behave is unconscious. Some studies will even say maybe upwards of 95%. We're trying to bring that into consciousness, bring the invisible to visible. So that's some of the like pre-training. How well do I know myself? How critical am I towards myself? Can I move towards that compassion? Not in like this way out there kind of woo-woo way, just in like, yeah, this is it. Like, this is the event. I'm doing the best I can and that's good enough. And that will help bring you down to where you're actually performing better, right? I mean, that's really what we're aiming for right here is, is in this moment is how do I perform? So there's this compassion, there's this taking action, and then there's this managing the nervous system. So this is a huge one. Training beforehand helps in the event, right? You, you wait, you know, I'll tell my clients, like if you wait for a panic attack to learn how to manage your nervous system, not gonna work very well. If you learn about all the cues that build up into that place and, and you do the work in front, you can actually move away from panic attacks. You can heal from those things. So managing the nervous system in a chaotic go, go, go environment that we're talking about right now, I like to think of it as like taking moments 
or snapshots because you're not going to be able to like, okay, I've got 20, I got 10 minutes. I'm going to go meditate or I'm going to go like, it's just not going to happen. So we can do a lot in little snapshots or taking moments. So one is opening vision. You take a moment, take a few seconds and look up and open your peripheral vision really wide connected to so many parts of the brain, to the phrenic nerve, the vagus nerve, but has a very big calming effect. And so, and this is coming from um, Dr. Huberman's work at Stanford. He's a neuroscientist, right? So he's doing this work on trying to help people. How do we in the moment get our nervous systems to downregulate? So vision is one of those things, opening it up wide just for a few moments, right? You take that moment Breathing is the second best, you know, breathing and vision are the two best things we have. Elongating the exhale. Like I, I'll tell people, especially in this environment where it's chaotic, don't make it super complicated. You don't have to do some pattern or protocol, right? If it's helpful for you, great. You know, one that's awesome for people that are first responders, special ops military is three in, one hold, six out. So through the nose, if you can. But if you can't remember that in the moment, just take a, like a, take a moment and say, what's my breath right now? Is it short, shallow? Is it fast? Am I holding it? Can I take a deep breath and slowly exhale? Can I exhale for six to 10 seconds? And you take a few moments to do that to help bring your nervous system down. All of these strategies and tactics to frankly keep yourself together, focused on points, can be better patient care, better care for you in the moment. And I want to get into, you know, what to do immediately after in a second, but do these things that help kind of, you know, give you resilience right then and there have effects later, or is it more of here's, here's how you are an effective operator right now? It's both. It's making you more an effective operator now because you're more in that sweet, like that performance zone of your nervous system being ramped up versus getting into that overwhelmed place. So your, your cognitive abilities go up, like everything goes up. The other thing that helps is like part of how we reduce the potential for trauma getting stuck or frozen in the body in the limbic system is helping to integrate and that's down-regulating. And so this is something that's helpful to think about as like a daily practice, how am I modulating throughout my days? Not just the, the mass event or the, the big, you know, busy night in the ER or whatever, the mass shooting, whatever it is we're talking about. It's like, what does my normal day look like? How am I modulating up and down throughout the day? Cause stress isn't bad. Stress is a good thing. Like it's how we, it's how we adapt. It's how we change. It's how we grow. Our, our viewpoint of it makes a difference as well. Changes how our body reacts to it. So the stress isn't bad. The vent isn't bad, right? It's more about how do we take these moments and learn how to modulate up and down throughout our day so that we're not like pegged. You take a brand new car or that brand new motorcycle and you're supposed to like work the engine in, right? If you just peg it at 8,000 RPMs and just go, 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 like eventually it fries. That's kind of the same idea that what does my day look like? No, I don't need to take like massive amounts of time throughout my day to do practices that downregulate, which if you have that time, can be a very beneficial thing. But even just taking moments, like I'm taking it five minutes every 35 minutes and I look up and open my vision and breathe, quick walk. Um, so yeah, it helps on both because 
when we get down in the opposite of sympathetic, parasympathetic, and again, this isn't like a dimmer switch. The nervous system is much more complex than that, but that parasympathetic is rest, digest, recover. That's not just our, our body. That's our mind. That's everything. That's why down-regulating within these stressors and even the post stuff, we'll talk about that is really important because it helps reduce the potential of it getting stuck and becoming a bigger issue. Another awesome, and this will be a good segue into post because you can, you can kind of argue for it in both ways, but I, I saw this, I can't remember where I saw this. I think it was on like Instagram the other day. Um, and I thought it was brilliant. There was this group of intensive care uh, unit doctors. So they, these ICU doctors, wherever they were at, really busy hospital, lots of COVID patients that were really sick, stressors throughout their day. And every hour they were taking a few minutes and they would go outside and they would sprint down the parking lot for 10 seconds. It, all ages, right? The, the video that showed, you know, seven-year-old doc sprinting down the, it doesn't, you're not going hundred percent. You're going maybe 60%, 70% for 10 seconds. You don't always have that time or that luxury, right? But sympathetic system is designed for us to survive, to react. And so you have all this chemistry going on that wants to do that. So I thought it was brilliant to give it that like 10 seconds and not, you're not going out there doing intervals, right? You're not trying to put a bunch of stress on the nervous system. You're just giving somewhere for that stuff to go. Take a 10 second sprint as you're walking back into the ICU or ER, you're taking slow, deep breaths, elongate the exhale, calm the system down. So then you just brought it up, gave something for it to do with the, the body movement and then brought it back down with breath as you walk back in. And so little things like that can be really helpful. Well, let's go to the after. Things have settled down and it's immediately after, you know, it's like the day, the second day. What are the effective positive strategies? And then what are the things that people commonly do that set them up for future stress, future trauma, PTSD? Well, let me flip the script. What have you done in your life as an ER doc where you're like on the, you know, hindsight, it's always 2020, sure. right? Like, oh, on the back end, that wasn't that helpful for me. I'll tell you both sides of this coin right now. Let's just talk about these events in particular. If I talked to the team, my friends, people that were involved, the people that were not involved, it was very helpful. If I ever kept things inside, and let them stew, they just locked in on stew mode very quickly. For me, it was just talking about it. And just, it was a lot of talking about the, oh, like, you know, we managed this patient this way and like this happened, this crazy story. And it was all, almost, it would bring the emotion back, you know, like, wow, like we were in this and they, oh my God, you couldn't believe this. Some guy parked his car right in front of the right in front of the ambulance bay and left his diesel motor on. It just stank and we couldn't get the car off. And the guy was, you know, now in the operating room and like, what are we doing here? And then, and then this one dude had a truck full of chickens and all the chickens running through the air. It was like crazy. And at the same time, there's this other patient in trauma bay one that we did a thoracotomy on and like, we didn't have enough supply, you know, like kind of going through that. And then you're talking to somebody who gets it. And they're like, oh my gosh, like totally, I, could t I totally get that. I'm not sure what that did, but I found that to be super effective. Yes. So you're talking connection, right? It's not even so much about the talking. It's the connection to your team, yes. to other humans. So connection versus isolation going and 
isolating yourself and stewing on it, not necessarily the best option. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much never. Right. Um, going and trying to ignore it and binge on a bunch of Netflix, probably not the best option. Not sleeping very well, going out and partying or drinking, like uh, these different things of just taking care of your body reduces the ability for it to integrate everything it just went through. Sometimes you can get away with it for a long time and then all of a sudden you can't. There's a big difference between, and I'll talk about this as we get into what to do, like isolating yourself versus time to yourself. And you can ask yourself, like, how am I feeling right now? Because the isolation usually feels pretty bad. You're in a negative place, negative thought patterns, maybe actions, holding the weight of it all. That's much different than you know, maybe even proactive or, or a, a process to be in, in self-isolation in this, this positive way. Sarah stared at nature for a couple of weeks, right? That was- It was brilliant. She, she went out to nature. Nature has a down-regulatory effect on, on human beings for the most part. And she also did some writing. Writing is also one of those things that quiets down the amygdala, that smoke alarm. So it can help integrate things and help quiet all that down. That's not isolation. That is getting away and working a process and downregulating the system. And in a way, those two weeks, my guess, allowed a lot of integration for her to happen so that she could go back and engage with work and for the most part, do all right. So afterwards, connection. If there's solitude, have it be intentional with mm-hmm. allowing you to integrate this, whether that is being in nature, whether that is journaling or you know, different things are going to work for different people. And there's also debriefs. She mentioned debriefs. I think those can be very effective because it also, it frankly, it's connection. And it's also not feeling that these things that you're experiencing are just you. Right. In the end, it's just, oh, you too? Man, that makes me feel better. Yeah, for sure. That, that connection in that way definitely makes us feel better, right? We're not so alone in it. You know, all those, those negative self-critics we can have, like nobody else is struggling with it. It's just me. All of those things can, can really add up. And like the critical stress debriefings, you know, those are important things. It's important information. One of the biggest things I see missing for so many of, of people going through this stuff is there's the, the debriefings, the learning, and it's more from like, what could we do better? What would we should, you know, important stuff. There's support, but then there's like, so much of trauma is about the body. Like one of my favorite books about trauma is the body keeps the score. It's the title of it. And so it's okay. How do we not think our way out of this trauma response? How do we work with our body to move it towards integrating it all? Connection can be a piece of that because we've found that we don't really like, we can't heal from trauma by ourselves very well. Um, It can be, it's a part of the healing process. I wouldn't have clients if people could heal from trauma all the time on their own. It takes relationship. That doesn't always mean a therapist. Sometimes that can mean a colleague that you're able to open up. Relationship really matters in this stuff. So not isolating is definitely important. Downregulating is really important to help encourage integration. And so we can do this in a lot of different ways, like movement. Is really important, but what type of movement? What what's the dosage? The right dosage can be helpful. Too much can be harmful. And so, 
after this, you're feeling amped up. Maybe it's really excited. Maybe it's maybe it's the opposite, overwhelmed. So many people will will deal with that by maybe going out and having intense exercise. Is that the right thing? Is that sympathetic dose on your nervous system, the extra sympathetic dose, a positive thing? It might help you release the thoughts, the mental stress, but it's more stress on the system. So what would it look like to do that short 10 minute or 10 second sprint? But what shift into gears of like walking, hiking, yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, like these more down-regulatory movement processes to help move things through. When we do self-propelled forward motion, our eyes do this small back and forth movement and that helps quiet down the amygdala as well. Helps ramp up the, the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So going on that walk or that hike in nature, opening vision wide, like all that's going to be really helpful getting the system to come back down because it did what it needed to do. It went up when it needed to go up, right? It went sympathetic when it needed to. Now we need to get better at dropping it down so that things can recover, repair, integrate, so they don't become problems. One thing that's ever present after an event like this is that the hospital says, hey, counselors are available for you to, you know, to, to see somebody if mm-hmm. you want to, which is, <laughs> it's, it almost seems like, it should just be everybody see a counselor and then we'll kind of go from there and see kind of, kind of what you need. Because I think that people in healthcare are very reluctant to do this. You know, first, first off you see it as a sign of weakness. Second off, you think that there might be something punitive down the road for you if, if you're doing that, but let's take that out of the picture. There's that little editorial there. Somebody is engaged in counsel with you and it's, it's after something like this. And you know, you've talked a lot about, different skills and breathing and, and, and movement yeah. and vision and journaling, and then some solitude and, you know, and down regulating. But what, what is, the, what does the long-term look like here? Think about it this way. Uh, this, as I was listening to Sarah and thinking about what I wanted to say on here, I had this like idea of building blocks, right? Like we move through life and we have these blocks that start stacking. If you have blocks that are like perfectly symmetrical, <laughs> they stack a lot more stable. But then if you get ones that are like off base or maybe one's edge is a little skinnier than the other, then all of a sudden that the whole stack gets really wobbly. What I'm looking for is if people have like developmental trauma or just, just a lot of adverse childhood experiences, that type of work might look different than somebody that's like, yeah, I had a pretty solid I mean, we all have our stuff, right? We're, but I had a pretty solid childhood, I think. And like up until recently, I've, I've been fine. And there's just this one event. Then there's very specific tools that we can use. It's like one or two sessions. EMDR is one, for example. Like if you have a pretty solid basis, one or two sessions, and like that limbic system is going to let go and integrate and it's not going to be an issue anymore. What is that? What does EMDR stand for? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's extremely powerful, especially for those like one set acute trauma. Now I'm having all these problems. I have a pretty good background. It can be used for more than that. It just has to be very, you know, in my opinion, very skilled, highly trained clinician to do that. So there's these more body-based therapies like EMDR, somatic experiencing, brain spotting is one I use with really great results with people. The body holds on to this stuff. So, can't all just be talk therapy either. 
because it, like that's engaging in our, you know, higher level thinking brain is not where the, the stuck trauma store. And there's no direct connection back to that. So it kind of depends on their history, on what direction we go and what that might look like. But man, there's, there are things that can help people get that charge out soon. And, and in some ways, like the sooner, and there's a lot of uh, research in the EMDR community around this too, like the sooner that you do trauma reprocessing therapy after a traumatic event that you're struggling with, the quicker your system moves through because it hasn't like solidified yet, right? It hasn't turned into that ice cube in the, and frozen in the limbic system. It's not a weakness. It's just our, our systems responding the way they're supposed to. And sometimes they get stuck. They get stuck in certain states and we need help getting back to that nervous system that can modulate freely like it's supposed to. You're talking about different people going to have different experiences, different building blocks. But I mean, there's, there's kind of a common thread with all of this that everybody's Venn diagram overlaps on something. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I'm curious as to, you know, when you're caring for people with trauma and let, let's say people who are in healthcare or first responders or emergency clinicians, nurses, whatever, ICU, is there a common practice? It's like everybody gets this because it is so effective for that common thread. It's a great question. You know, I think there are hundreds of ways of doing this common thread, right? In quotations, um, <laughs> the process of letting go is a really, really powerful one. And I don't think it's thought about or, or taught enough or people have spent enough time developing what their process is. And it's kind of like building off of this idea of containing as well, but I'll just share some of my process and I'll share some other examples. Our brain loves visualization, storytelling and, you know, imagining. And so when we can create visualization, it can be a really helpful process. Visualizing letting go, right? What does that look like? Could it be putting that patient that just stuck in your mind on this little boat and watching it drift away and wishing them the best, wishing them peace, wishing them well-being, could it be painting the image that you're feeling or experiencing up on a cloud and watching the, the wind blow it away, but you're intentionally letting go or what I like to do for myself, is call, I call it cutting strings. So first it's, what's my state? Am I overwhelmed? Am I calm? Am I amped up? Am I anxious? So I'm going to check in with my state. Not that I need to do anything with it. I'm just noticing it. It's going back to that equanimity. Like, huh, interesting. I'm feeling a little like stressed. That last client I had, their story or their work, the work that we did really had an impact on me, whether it's what you're hearing or the energy that you're around, they can make impacts. So I noticed my state from this place of equanimity. It just is. And then I asked myself, is there something I need to learn from this? And then it's time to go into the place of emotional intelligence that I call emotional control. Okay, now it's time to move on, right? Like now it's time to let go of that, that patient, that client. And so I'll take a couple deep breaths into my heart, feel my heart expand as I breathe in, lower and let it relax and deflate like a balloon as I breathe out. That's kind of putting myself into neutral. Then I'm going to bring up an, a person, an experience, an activity, a place, a pet that brings me joy and or gratitude. 
So I'm going to visualize that person and I'm going to feel that joy and that gratitude in my heart again. We could hook your brain and your heart up to EEG and EKGs and see the frequencies change. And so now we're noticing and feeling that joy and that gratitude. Thank you for that person, that experience. And our whole state has now changed because we visualized it. Our brain doesn't really know the difference between that amazing experience I had ski racing my senior year of high school in the moment versus me replaying it, feeling that joy, filling my heart with it, or one of my kids being born, whatever it is. It can be simple too. It doesn't have to be a big event. It can be, I went for a walk and the sun felt amazing on my skin. And so you're changing your state. And then you bring up that client or that patient that's stuck, that's just weighing on you. And that's where you bring in the compassion. You wish them well-being. You wish them the best. And then I take a pair of, actually, it started off as scissors, but for some reason over the years, it switched to like a ninja sword. I have <laughs> no idea. It's probably something to do with my childhood playing ninja all the time. I visualize this sword cutting that tie, cutting the tie of that experience with that client, that patient that's really having this effect on me, wishing them the best and watching them drift away. Do you feel that that's a one-off like, okay, I'm good. Or is that a re like a repeated relationship you have with that event and, you know, and kind of going through that process and then cutting the tie with your sword or your scissors? Great question. You know, if I reflect, like I don't always use it. And I think the more you practice it, the quicker you get at it. But complacency is also something that can catch us off guard, right? I do notice the more that I do it, the better I do. And so it's not that I do this with every single patient or client I work with. I've over the years, I've kind of developed a sense of like, which ones are sticking with me more than others. And those are the ones that for whatever reason, I need to put more effort into that. But the more you do this, the quicker you get at it. This isn't a big 10 minute process. Like this is quick and you have to find your way, right? I've heard dozens, hundreds of different ways of doing this. Another therapist I know, like after a hard, long day, she would, as she drove home, put each of those clients, she happened to work with kids. So this was a lot of abuse stuff in a mailbox, wishing them well, wishing them the best, putting them in there. And then by the time she got home, she could be engaged in her life, letting go of all that stuff. And then the next day for work, right, this is a little different because it's more of longer term relationships. She'd unpack the mailboxes as she went back into work. So it's just this process of you know, cutting that tie, letting go. When you do this, do you kind of go through a, you had mentioned before to, you know, kind of understanding the state and trying to get a state change, but do you go through a specific meditative or breathwork process to, to be able to really engage with that visualization? Because it's a, it's a pretty intense and clear visualization that you're going through, which can be hard. It, like if you're sympathetically charged, I mean, there's no way. I mean, I know you kind of, you invoke the joy of that moment you go through this, but like, how do you start it? It depends. If I'm really feeling like really amped up, even if I only have like five minutes, I'll go outside and walk for like three minutes and I'll do it while I'm walking. I'll open my vision really wide. I'll start out with taking just a couple deep, slow breaths and then drop into that, that heart place, bring up that joyful memory, induce the state change, think of that client, wish them the best, cut the ties and, and head back into my, my office. That I don't always have the time. Sometimes it's like, bam, bam, bam. I have three or four people in a row and the sessions went like right up to the end. 
And I'm going to wait until the end of the day to do it. Because if I work at letting go and cutting those as like a little bit of a daily practice, then you don't get the accumulation effect so much, right? Because sometimes that's what I'll see, especially, I don't know why I haven't seen research around this, but especially with like the firefighters I see often, they'll be good for 15 years. And then all of a sudden that one event just creates crazy levels of PTSD off of all this stuff, right? That's that kind of late onset. So I, I like to be proactive, right? And that's where I feel my career in some ways is heading more and more. It's like, how do we be proactive in this way so that we're not waiting until someone's got full-blown PTSD? And I say full-blown because I, I kind of see it as a spectrum almost. Not meet the diagnosis, but have a lot of problems going on. So how do we get in front of that? How do we become more resilient? How do we build these practices? And they don't have to be super fancy, complex take lots of time type of things. Even just modulating the day is super helpful. Wow, Ryan, fantastic. So many tools packed in there. I'm going to have to go back and listen a couple times. And uh, listeners, show notes are going to be your buddy on this one because there is a lot of good stuff in here. Yeah, hopefully it's helpful. Thank you for having me. You know, I, my heart goes out to first responders in any field. There's a cost to the work you guys do. And hopefully this is helpful for you guys. Thank you so much, Ryan. You're welcome. Wow. There is no one like Ryan Cheney. Such an honor to have him on the show. If you want to get a hold of Ryan for consulting or to speak to your group or organization, he has given us his permission to put his email in the show notes. I'm not going to say it here because it's a long email. You can just find it there, cut and paste, throw him a note, whatnot. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and rating. I read all the reviews and more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance. Until the next time, be well and keep on rocking.